Hey, deserving listeners, I consider it my personal mission this week to answer every single patron email that I have cataloged in my archive. So let's get to it. My name is Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor, and this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. This first email is from patron Kiara from Miami. She writes, after listening to your deep dive on attachment, I'm curious if you think it is best to pick up a baby every single time the baby cries or whines to help them to form a secure attachment. End of email. Yeah, so this is a great question, and it's a question that every parent wonders about, especially when you actually start parenting a child. Before you have your first child, you imagine, oh, I'm always going to be there for my kid. I'm going to love my child. I'm going to be there. And then the reality of parenting hits and you're tired or distracted or just in a bad mood and you don't have the energy to constantly tend to your child's every whim. And so what are you supposed to do? And, you know, there's these conflicting notions out there of, well, you don't want to turn your child into a spoiled brat, right? So you have to teach your child a lesson. Well, at what age do you teach children lessons. The general rule and what the research shows is that you want to keep distress of your child to a minimum. And this applies to any age, honestly. And so let's take it in three different age groups. So to a nine-month-old child, this is a child that cannot do things on their own. They can't feed on their own. They can't get comfortable on their own. They can't comfort themselves. And so every time they have distress, whether it's discomfort or loneliness or whatever it is, lack of entertainment, the child will feel distress. And as a general rule, you want to try to have a caregiver take care of that child or at least attempt to lower that child's distress as soon as possible, even trying to circumvent them feeling distress in the first place by predicting where they're going to be in the next upcoming moments. And you notice that I said that it's not the mother's responsibility. It is all of the caregiver's responsibility. In the good old days, there would be several caregivers. You would have both parents. You would have aunts and uncles. You would have older siblings. You would have grandparents. You would have neighbors. Everyone would be there to take care of the child and entertain the child. In today's world, we tend to put all of the parenting responsibility on one individual, which is really not humanly possible. And a very um, dysfunctional way of living life in general, not just as a parent, not just as parenting a child, but as pooling resources, having people to talk to, this kind of thing. And we live in an increasing isolating, isolated world, and it's not helping the situation. But the general rule is at the age of nine months, you want to have your child be in as little distress as possible. Now, the child is inevitably going to be in some distress, but you want to minimize that a lot. And that means that every time the baby cries or whines, you want to be there. You want to try. You want to attempt. Now, there are some things that are just unavoidable, like a child that you can't figure out why they're upset or say they have an earache or something and you can't take away their pain or you're doing everything you can. So, you know, 
there's going to be some distress that you're not going to be be able to alleviate under the best of circ even under the best of circumstances. Okay, so let's skip forward to the age of seven years old. So you have a seven year old who cries and whines, but the key is is you have to determine is this actual distress or is it manipulation. Seven year olds will often learn that if they cry or whine, they'll get what they want. But they're not really in distress. They're more just trying to gain power or you know, trying to manipulate because they want another cookie at, at, at dinner time, whatever it is. So in, that, in this circumstance, as a parent, you have to be attuned to them. You have to know them well enough to know, like, is this real distress or is it fake distress? And this can actually be kind of hard to determine. Some parents tend to err on one side or the other too much. They'll, they'll say, like, anytime my kid is upset, that means that's an emergency. And you have other parents that will say, ah, my kid's always trying to manipulate and I just have to put my foot down. It's hard to know, but put your effort into, one, trying to get to know your kid, and two, getting to know your own biases that were probably developed in the way you were parented. So if you were parented in a very stern way, then you'll tend to be more stern with your kids in a way that isn't helpful. So you have to determine with a seven-year-old when they are in distress, and the principle still applies. A seven-year-old's can fend for themselves in some ways, but a lot of ways they can't. And so if they're in distress in a way that they can't really help themselves and or they haven't learned how to help themselves yet, then it's really important that you help them to lower their distress. And if we went further into the future, we could imagine that also, you know, applying as well, age appropriateness. A 20-year-old child is in distress. What do you do? Well, there are, you know, twenty-year-olds are more able to fend for themselves and and figure things out for themselves, but they still depend on their parents in a lot of ways, and so you want to tend to that. So the overarching uh, principle here is that we're trying to help children to develop a secure attachment, as you're saying, patron Chiara from Miami, Miami, is or Chiara. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but you're trying to raise a child with secure attachment, meaning that the child has good working models of self and other. They believe that they are worthy of love, and they believe that other people can be trusted. This is an important lesson to learn moving forward in life, perhaps the most central lesson that every child needs to navigate. And parents should you know, have some conscious efforts in terms of parenting in a way that will you know, help promote secure attachment in a child. So the idea here is that if a child is in distress at the age of nine months or seven years of age, and you don't come to them in a way that is appropriate to the situation, then they are in a conundrum. They have to make a choice. Is it my fault or is it the parent's fault? And neither choice is good. If they say it's my fault, then they become preoccupied with other people and they become very clingy in a nutshell. If they decide it's other people's fault, then they become avoidant and possibly narcissistic. So when kids are in distress, it's important to figure out a way to reduce that. Now, for seven-year-olds and 20-year-olds, you can actually spend time teaching them how to fend for themselves, how to reduce their own distress themselves so that you don't need to respond every time, right? Teach a man to fish and you will feed him forever. Give a man a fish and you fed him for a day. So 
you, you can teach a child to fend for themselves, and so you don't have to be there every time. So it's not as if you have to constantly respond. It's an overall effort of trying to reduce the stress in a child because younger children in particular, when they feel distress and, and they have no way of trying to get out of that distress and they alert other people to their distress and no one comes to alleviate their distress, then this lends itself to insecure attachment styles. They, ha- they have to figure out a way of defending themselves from that problem. And like I said, they either decide I can't depend on other people or I can't depend on myself. And you just don't want kids to go there. Having said all that, parenting is extremely complex and there are so many factors to consider. So I'm not going to claim that what I just said is any kind of comprehensive guide to parenting in general. But those are the attachment principles that you want to follow. Okay, let's read another email. All right, this next email is from anonymous patron. She writes, I just finished listening to your deep dive on avoidant personality disorder, and I was immediately like, well, that is me exactly. It's a strange feeling to at once feel validated that I'm not inherently broken, but at the same time understand that I'm considerably worse off than I than I had assumed, to say nothing of the spooky, uncomfortable feeling of being seen. I'm increasingly convinced that I should bite the bullet and consider the absolutely terrifying thought of going to therapy. I've been doing very well with a fortunate combo of self-awareness, empiricism, and an amazing spouse to support me, but I'll have to acknowledge that a trained professional is likely called for here. So just chiming in here on the email. Yeah, great. It's totally normal. I hear this all the time from people when they listen to the podcast and they they discover, wow, I think they're I think Kirk is describing me right now. It's both validating, as you say, because it's like, wait, so there's a thing that this is called? That feels good. I always thought there was something inherently wrong with me. Now I realize that this is just a condition that a lot of people have. And then the uh, other realization of, well, geez, I've got a lot of therapy ahead of me. That can be very daunting. And it can be very spooky, as you say, for me to not know you and to describe you so sufficiently, you know, to, to, to have that experience. I find schema therapy often has that, has that result. And so, yeah, and I'm glad that you have that awareness and I'm glad that you're considering therapy. It's very important. I would find someone that's very good with avoidant personality disorder. I would say that interpersonal therapy, psychodynamic therapy, humanistic therapy would be good, but obviously talk with a professional. You go on to say in this email, you mentioned avoidant personality disorder being misdiagnosed as autism spectrum. And I was wondering... Is there any research on the comorbidity between autism and personality disorders? End of email. Yes, there is. There's a fair amount of research on the coexistence in an individual between autism and personality disorders, and they're highly correlated. And the speculation is that because you have something different about the way your brain works, you interpret the world around you in a different way than other people and in a way that for a lot of parents is difficult to comprehend and difficult to react to appropriately. And thus, as an early child with autism, children will often experience the world, the, their world and their attachments 
in a way that is suboptimal. And as a result, the child has to figure out ways of coping with that reality. And one of the ways that children will cope is what we later develop as what we call personality disorders. Personality disorders are ways of coping with difficulty. And they're basically a defensive structure or a defensive constellation in reaction to relationship difficulties early in life. And having autism doesn't always, but it usually means that the child is misinterpreted, the child will misinterpret as well, and attachment relationships are compromised. Having said that, many people with autism spectrum do not develop personality disorders. Uh, I would say most people with autism don't develop personality disorders or any significant personality disorder spectrum. The other thing I'll advocate for is for early detection and education and support for parents so that they can parent their children better in a way that doesn't require the child to develop defensive structures in reaction to attachment difficulties. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from an anonymous patron, and I'm, I'm sort of summarizing here because it was a longer email, but just to read some excerpts here from the email. I am out on medical leave from my job to get complex PTSD treatment. There have been multiple instances now in which Kaiser has not provided adequate mental health care for me. So Kaiser is a, a medical insurance outfit. So she's saying that her medical insurance has not provided adequate mental health care for her. I have been unable to get the help I need, and I am very frustrated, frankly. At this point, I'm almost willing to pay out of pocket, but I also don't think that I should be that that should be necessary when I have health insurance that just doesn't seem to work in terms of adequately addressing mental health. I just don't know how to move forward at this point, and I've completely lost faith in the Kaiser system to provide any sort of appropriate care. End of email. Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is that complex PTSD is a is a very difficult condition. One, you've been traumatized. Two, you have this ongoing condition that is natural to result from trauma. And three, you have it's complex in that the triggers to your trauma reactivity is related to relationships. You know, if you don't know what complex PTSD is, it is PTSD that is complex, made complex by the fact that you were traumatized by someone in your family, usually a parent. So there's simple PTSD, which is you were in a car accident and you were traumatized by that, or you had a difficult medical procedure or something. And that's simple because it's, it's traumatic and it's awful and you can have debilitating PTSD afterwards. But it's not made complicated by the fact that you now are triggered by relationships. When you're traumatized by your mother, for example, you not only have PTSD, but you also now are triggered by love or affection or other human beings who try to take care of you. So that's what complex PTSD is in a nutshell. It's more complicated than that. But And so, anonymous patron, you're trying to get the treatment that you need, and you really need treatment because you, your symptoms of 
progressed to the point where you need needed to take medical leave from your job. And good for you for taking medical leave because complex PTSD is debilitating by its very nature. And you went to your medical insurance, which is rational to do. And in the longer version of your email, you talked about various details about how they completely have let you down. So complex PTSD treatment requires a trauma specialist. It requires a psychotherapist who really you know, specializes not only in PTSD, but complex PTSD, meaning that they're good at treating PTSD, but they're also good at managing the transference, counter-transference dynamic between client and therapist, because that's a big part of the, the treatment of complex PTSD usually. Not all the time, but usually for long-term healing, you do need some interpersonal element, long-term therapy element of healing, meaning that the therapist provides you with a secure attachment over time that corrects for the the incursion that your childhood trauma um, produced. And so the problem with that is it's very expensive because long-term therapy with a expensive interpersonal therapist is very costly to medical insurance. And so medical insurance is like Kaiser Permanente have a vested interest in trying to route clients away from those expensive options. And since mental health is often ignored in our society and by insurance companies, they get away with this kind of crap all the time. For example, if we just went away from mental health care and we went to, say, dentistry, and let's say that you needed a root canal, you had a cracked tooth and you had an infection and you needed to have a root canal. Well, root canals are expensive. It's surgery. You have to go to a specialist to do that sort of thing. And medical insurances are interested and I'm sure they have meetings where they're like, well, is there a way we can get away with having to pay for root canals because they're very expensive? Well, whenever there's a movement to do that, the population, the people will speak out against that. They'll say, no, no, no. You can't not pay for root canals. This is an important procedure. And the medical insurance will say, okay, fine, we'll pay for root canals. That's what, ha- that's what happens in the tension between medical insurance trying to drive down their cost so that they can make more profits and the customers pushing back. Well, when it comes to mental health care, medical insurances like Kaiser can get away with pushing back because people don't because the population of human beings don't push back on insurances why because of stigma because no one wants or very few people want to stand up and say look Kaiser you can't do this to do that to us so and there's all sorts of levels of this where you know in the United States we have employers who actually will pay for this sort of thing and so employers and you know human resource departments are often having to push back this sort of thing but anyway the point is is that right now in 2020 we live in a society where there's a tremendous amount of stigma regarding mental health and its treatment and thus not enough allocation of resources because for-profit organizations are in a constant Effort to try to drive down prices, and if they can get away with not having to pay for something, then they then they will do that. So, a place like Kaiser Permanente, uh, which is, I believe, I mean, I have Kaiser Permanente by the 
way. And I actually like it for medical care, but I don't think I would ever turn to Kaiser for a mental health care um, by any means, because I don't know, I haven't done a review, but my very brief experience with, with Kaiser and other there, it's basically, I don't know if it's considered a technical HMO, but, um, but anyway, the point is, is that they, they drive down prices by making sure that you are within their system. And the way that they keep you in the system is by giving you just enough services so that you're not complaining, but not so much services that you're driving up prices. And so one of the things that happens in mental health care, and I don't know about Kaiser particularly, but I know that other organizations have done this in the past, like group health, this kind of thing, is, uh, for example, uh, I remember uh, getting to know the group health system years ago. And so say you have complex PTSD and you call group health and you're just like, I need a therapist. Okay, well, the first person you talk to is a bachelor-level minimum wage employee that does an assessment on you. So this person has almost no training when it comes to mental health. And they do a very poor assessment of you that lasts maybe a half an hour over the phone or something. And this doesn't feel very good because you're talking to someone that might be like, you know, 21 years old and has no idea what they're talking about. And you have to bare your soul. So you do that process and then that person will either say, well, this sounds like you don't need therapy. Sometimes that person, that minimum wage employee will say, you don't qualify for therapy and that can push people away. And now say you do qualify for therapy. Well, now you maybe go to the second level where you talk to an intake person who might also determine you don't really need therapy. You don't qualify for a diagnosis. And so we're not going to pay for therapy for you. But let's say you do get through that screening process. And now you go to another therapist, an actual therapist, and you talk to that person. Well, that person is highly encouraged, either explicitly or implicitly, to do brief modes of therapy. So cognitive behavioral therapy, this sort of thing. And so you go to them with complex PTSD and they see you through the lens of CBT. And so they're like, okay, well, let's do five sessions of emotional regulation and then you should be done, which of course doesn't do anything really or does very little at the, anyway. And all this is an effort to essentially make it so annoying to patients that they just don't utilize the service. And Kaiser Permanente Group Health can say to auditors, look, we did our due diligence. We treated the, we diagnosed, we gave them the, the, this, you know, uh, evidence-based treatment. We can't help it if the client was not compliant with the treatment, this kind of thing. And all the while, the stockholders make a ton of money. Okay. So that's the state of affairs that we're in right now, and it's terrible. And so, anonymous patron, you're running into that system. You, you go to your mental, you go to your medical insurance, and you're like, "Well, that's where you go, right?" I mean, I'm I'm paying money for medical insurance, or my employer is paying on my behalf. This is what it's supposed to do, but it doesn't deliver. And for complex PTSD, I could I could absolutely see a situation where a managed healthcare system would 100% let you down. In fact, I would be extremely surprised if a managed healthcare system actually treated you well enough. So you're at this 
crossroads that you mentioned in the email where you're like, well, now I'm thinking about uh, private pay, meaning that you go outside of your mental health care and you just pay cash from your own bank account for a private therapist to treat you for complex PTSD. And often that is the answer. Often it's the only answer for people. Even people who have better health care insurance, sometimes it's the only answer. Because of our abysmal mental health care system that doesn't allocate enough tax dollars to this um, you know, important service that should be basically free for everybody. So, so uh, yeah, uh, if that's your only option to get better, then I would consider that. Now, of course, the downside is you're going to have to pay potentially hundreds of dollars every month to get the treatment that you deserve. On the plus side, you get to choose the therapist that you see, meaning that you have five sessions with a therapist, you don't like them, you get to switch therapists. So private pay often is one of the only things you can do. Now, sometimes you can convince your medical insurance, like Kaiser, that they should pay for an outside person. I've seen people do this before. So obviously get the therapist that you need, and if you can, if you can afford it, then go for it. And then you can go to Kaiser and you can say, look, your system let me down. And if you, if you want to go to war with me, I'm going to go to war with you because you as an organization completely mistreated me. Or I won't go to war with you and you can pay for my private pay therapist or at least you know 50% of the fee or 80% of the fee. You make the call, Kaiser, because I have a problem that is valid and I can get letters from my current therapist that says it's valid and I can also uh, you know, write up my account to, to prove that you completely let me down. You routed me to the wrong people. You treated me terribly. Or we can avoid that whole thing and you can pay for therapy. Your call. A lot of times, I don't know the percentage, the medical insurance will be like, okay, how much trouble is this person going to create? And how much money is that going to cost us to deal with? Or we can pay $300 a month so that this patient can can get off of our backs, that kind of thing. So that's one thing to do. But if you have complex PTSD and you can afford your own therapy to find a private pay person, then yes, absolutely pursue that. And absolutely know that that's not your fault, that the insurance company let you down. It's a very common experience. And many other listeners right now can attest to that. But don't give up. You deserve therapy. Now, if you can't afford it at all, a lot of therapists will provide sliding fee scale uh, for you. You can also find um, interns that might help. The other thing that I want to throw out there, if you're in the United States, this is not really necessarily, I don't know what other systems are in other countries, but in the United States, you'd be surprised how many people qualify for medical coupons, which makes therapy completely free. So in my town of Seattle, people and anonymous patron, you mentioned that you had a child. A lot of times, particularly if you have a child, you can qualify for medical coupons. And then once you get the medical coupon, this is, you know, qualifying for Medicaid services, 
Medicare services, you can go to a local mental health agency and all of your services are free. And you get to see a therapist one or two hours a week and your kid can see a therapist for free, like no copay at all. And a lot of people will say like, well, but I have a job. Yeah, and that even if you have a job, you still might surprisingly qualify for what we might colloquially call welfare mental health services. Anyway, let's go on to another email. But first, let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. This next email is from Anonymous Patron. She writes, I am currently in my practicum portion of my clinical program, so I have just begun seeing clients. One of my clients is in the middle of an intense court case and asked me to give a letter of support that her lawyer could present to the court on her behalf. My client has a pretty severe mood disorder, and she is compliant and, in, and engaged in therapy, and she came to therapy on her own accord. I drafted up a letter of support, but my supervisor said I could not send it without her approval, without my supervisor's approval. I told her when my client would need the letter, and my supervisor agreed to have it approved and drafted by then. My supervisor then let the date pass without a second thought, and I wasn't able to get my client the letter of approval. I feel heartbroken that I could have severely impacted not only the court's ruling, but also perpetuating the deep attachment wounds my client has already shared with me, as I feel that not submitting this letter is a form of abandonment. I am also angry that my supervisor would risk all of us looking bad and harming the client. My questions are, has my supervisor acted unethically, and how should I address this topic with my supervisor and my client? End of email. Yeah, so the first thing I'll say is that Early in my career, I believed that to be a supervisor, that must mean you are top-notch. You're competent, you care, you're, you're good with people. And then I proceeded to have my first supervisor who, in a very short description, was abusive, incompetent, and terrible. Uh, my very first supervisor at my very first internship was so abusive and so terrible. I'll spare you the details. I actually wrote it. It's in the first chapter of my book that I wrote on supervision called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision. You can get it on Amazon if you want. If I mean, it's a very niche sort of topic. But the first, if you're interested in supervision as a clinician, uh, buying the book, I think, you know, could be helpful. The first chapter, I talk about how, I talk about all the details of my very first internship. And after he fired me, after I, I was, he, my first supervisor fired me after like eight weeks, maybe like six weeks of being under his supervision, I was, I had decided that I was going to quit being a therapist. I thought, well, I'm a terrible person. My, my first supervisor thinks I'm a terrible clinician and a terrible person. So obviously this isn't the profession for me, so I guess I'm going to change careers. And if it weren't for this professor at Antioch where I was going convincing me otherwise, I, would have, I, wouldn't, be a, I wouldn't be here today talking to you. And I subsequently had 
a dozen plus more supervisors after that and realized, oh, my first supervisor was terrible, incompetent, abusive, and just a just a horrible human being. And I heard from subsequent supervisees of his how horrible he was with them as well. And he's, by the way, still supervising in Seattle today, which is a tragedy and a crime. But anyway, so I tell you all of this to say that being let down by a supervisor is not new. And I have since become a supervisor and written a book about supervision and supervised a lot of people who are in practicum and internship because I teach case consultation at my university for the past 20 years. And I've come to realize that there's a bell curve of supervisors. In the middle is where most supervisors are, like you know, 60 to 80% of supervisors are in the middle. And these supervisors are, they're not terrible, but they're not great. You don't really look up to them, but they don't abuse you. They don't really get in your way. They're basically mediocre, sometimes helpful individuals. But they're not particularly interesting. They have a very narrow point of view clinically. They're not very prepared to provide you with supervision. They're not very good mentors. You don't carry with them after your supervisory relationship ends. You know, they're fine, but mediocre and just boring to, to get supervision from them. At the high end of the bell curve, you have extremely uh, limited supply of these. I've had 17 plus supervisors, and I would put two supervisors in this top category. These are people who are excellent at their job. They're wise. They care. They establish safe attachment with you. They are people that I carry with me to this day. I um, think about them frequently. I, When I'm doing things on this podcast or clinically, their voices pop into my head. These people helped me grow. They supported me. I knew I could depend on them. Okay. At the other end, you also have a small portion of supervisors. I would put three to four supervisors in the low end. These supervisors are terrible, incompetent, abusive individuals and will make it, will traumatize you. I, thinking about a couple of supervisors that I had who were, who were traumatic to me, make my hands start to sweat. These are terrible human beings. And if you're not in the clinical world, you might just think back to past uh, bosses that you had. If you're a therapist and you've had uh, at least, you know, more than three supervisors, you can attest to this bell curve. So now I know some people out there have the fortune of having, say, five supervisors in their career, and all of them were excellent. And God bless you. You rolled the dice and you won. <laughs> but uh, the bell curve has, I found it to be very true across lots of different people that I talk to, particularly the more supervisors you have, because it, you know, gravitation to the mean, regression to the mean. Okay, so that's the first thing I'll say, anonymous patron, is the fact that your supervisor completely dropped the ball and did not give the letter back to you does not surprise me. I hear stories like this all the time. The fact is, is that at agencies, which it sounds like you're at, you're at a mental health agency, a community agency, and 
these people are underpaid, overworked, and undertrained. A lot the the path to becoming a supervisor at these places often involves, you know, you're it, the the path is you're an intern and you're very insecure, and then you get hired after graduation, and now you're a staff therapist at these organizations. And then you become fully licensed a couple years later. And then maybe a year or two later, you get your first supervisee. So now, you know, now you're three or four years post-graduation. You barely understand what it's like to be a, a therapist. You feel pretty good in, with your own clients. But that's a far cry from being able to supervise people in a meaningful mentorship relationship. But since the agency tends to lose people pretty quickly because the pay is bad and the work is hard, they have to compromise by high, by basically elevating very green therapists to the role of supervisor very prematurely. And so, and they're not they're often not asked. They're often just told, "Look, someone has to supervise this intern. It's got to be you." And the person's like, "I don't think I'm ready to supervise," but they're like, "Look." You're just going to have to do that. So now this person is thrust into supervision with extremely minimal uh, um, training, if at all. And they're just trying to get by and they don't know what they're doing and they will drop the ball while recognizing the fact that they're overworked and underpaid and stressed out. And they'll, They'll drop the ball on, on lots of things like this, not because they don't care, but because they're just overworked. And if our politicians and voters allocated more funds to tax dollars and, and to you know government funds to pay for these agencies to, say, double the income, double the salaries of these people, then you could retain people longer you could work them less and you could you know increase job satisfaction which would probably eliminate this problem you know it's not like your supervisor decided ha 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 i'm going to be a terrible supervisor today it's it's probably more sy- systemic than that but then you ask a question here has my supervisor acted unethically well it's hard to know because on its face there's not enough details to know but it's possible you could make an argument for that in that one the supervisor has indirectly caused harm to the client in which they could have prevented they also have an ethical responsibility to you in all of our ethical codes there is explicit discussion around supervision ethics to supervisees and that we can you know confidentiality is important and also Uh, harming supervisees is bad. And it sounds like you were harmed in this process. You were hurt. You were let down. So you could make an argument that it was an ethical violation, but it's not a slam dunk. You would have to know more of the details. The other question question you ask is, how should I address this topic with my supervisor? Well, you just speak up because... You're, the, the way to think about supervisors is that they are – they're the people del, del, delivering the service. So let me back up. And for those of you who aren't clinical people, this might be a little boring to you. But so interns – I don't know about where you're at, Anonymous Patron, but in my town, 
interns are treated so badly that they have almost no self-esteem. So the way that it works, if you're not aware, is that you go to graduate school to become a therapist. And in order to become trained fully, you have to do an internship or a practicum in which you are just thrown in during your graduate program to a local agency and you start treating clients. Well, you're not paid usually. And you're also treated poorly. And you're also begging for these internship positions usually. So this creates this false notion that the intern is some sort of groveling beggar and the supervisor is sort of the boss person and has all the power. But that is, that is not the way it should be. Interns are owed things. Interns are owed good supervision. They're owed good training. They're owed enough clients. They're owed good, good clients that are conducive to one's training. They're owed good graduate school you know, experiences. Why? Because that intern is paying tens of thousands of dollars for this service. And the practicum internship site is getting free labor. So the intern is absolutely entitled in a tremendous way. But interns frequently don't feel that. And I frequently will tell my interns, you are entitled to so much to the point where, you know, I'm a professor and students will sometimes ask me questions over email or something. And they'll apologize. They'll be like, I'm so sorry to bother you. I know you're really busy, but I have this question. And whenever I hear that kind of language, I will answer their question as soon as I can, which sometimes is within five minutes of getting the email because I, I am very careful about responding very quickly to students because they, they deserve that. And I, as a student myself, hated it when professors didn't get back to me. It was just because you just have no power as a student. Anyway, I usually get back to them as soon as possible. And then what I say also is, look, do not apologize for asking me a question. You're paying tens of thousands of dollars that I am getting, and I'm getting paid. So indirectly, you're paying me to answer your questions. And so do not apologize. You know, if you go to a restaurant and you order a hamburger and fries and three days goes by and they don't give you your hamburger and fries, you don't go to the cook or the waiter and say, I'm terribly sorry, but is it okay if I get my food now? No. You say, look, I paid for that hamburger and fries. Give me my food. <laughs> well, as a student, you are paying with both money and with your free labor. You deserve to be treated better. So speak up and tell your supervisor that, you know, you deserve to be treated better. And maybe that means your supervisor has to say, you know what, I'm overworked. And your supervisor has to go to their supervisor and say, I'm being overworked to the point where I am unethically mistreating my supervisees. So it might have to go all the way up to the top. Anyway, you also say, how do I address this topic with my client? Tell them the truth. Say, I really wanted to write this letter because I really cared about you and I care about you. And I was prepared to give you the letter right away, but then my supervisor came in and said that she had to approve of it, which I was fine with. So I gave her the letter. I told her you needed it by X date, and my supervisor just completely dropped the ball. And it's very upsetting to me, and I'm terribly sorry. Now, some people will say, well, you're throwing your supervisor under the bus. No, you're not. You're telling the goddamn truth. 
This is what happened. And if this makes your client angry at your supervisor, then so be it. Your client should be upset at your supervisor. Now, as an asterisk to all this, if you had come to me, anonymous patron, and said, look, my client asked me to write a letter of support so that they could read it in court, I would say to you, I don't know if this is a good idea because you can open yourself up to a lawsuit if you write letters like this that are used in court. You might get subpoenaed. And are you ready for that kind of you know cross-examination on the stand? So if you came to me, we would have had a talk about whether or not it was advisable and whether or not it was even ethical, given your skill level, that you could even write such a letter. It's a wonderful impulse to have that you care about your client, but it's not always a good idea to get involved in this way. It's a competence question. It's a legal question. And it's a personal, I don't know, comfortability question. And so we would have that question. Now, it's possible that your supervisor passively just didn't want you to submit this letter for those reasons. Now, your supervisor should have been upfront about that. But I'm just throwing that out there as a possibility as to why your supervisor just dropped the ball. All right. Uh, But in conclusion, you have rights. Speak your mind. Tell the truth. If your client hates your supervisor, so be it. Like it's, it's, it, it's not your fault. Now, you have to balance all this out with politics, and you have to live with your boss for a long time. And I don't know the answer to that. Um, but at the very least, you can tell your client, and for your client's sake, look, I did everything I could to get you that letter, and, I, and it just didn't work out. And to tell you the truth, it's not my fault. <laughs> But I'm so. I'm, but I'm sorry on the behalf of my agency that we let you down. Um, that's your primary concern because you really want to preserve that attachment and not give the impression that you were abandoning your client. Anyway, let's go on to another email. All right. This next email is from Patron Jasmine from Oregon. She writes, "I hear a lot of talk about how your attachment style is formed in childhood. I know it is possible for someone to recover through therapy." through therapy from having insecure attachment, but is it possible for someone to have a secure or mostly secure attachment from their childhood and then later have their attachment style change due to adult events in life to becoming more insecure? Sorry, I'm reading this badly, but essentially what patron Jasmine is asking is, can you grow up secure and then have a terrible set of relationships in your adult life and then become insecure attachment style? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Our attachment styles are usually formed early in life, but it is definitely not a fixed situation. I will often talk about how one can have earned security, meaning that you can be you can develop a insecure attachment style due to difficulties in childhood and then through corrective experiences have security later in life. You could have a you know secure attachment style later in life. And the reverse is true as well. You can have what we would call secure attachment style at the age of 25 and then be abused or mistreated or cheated on or whatever and then exhibit insecure attachment style. The, the part that I find t- to be confusing to people is people think of, secu- of uh, attachment style as some sort of fixed biological thing like, you know, 
the it's you know like it's in your DNA or something, and that's not what it is. Uh, secure uh, attachment style. The key word is a, is style. Is that people develop a style of reacting to attachment threats and a style of building attachments and secure attachments. And when we focus on the word style, we know that with most things, styles can change. Your style of fashion can change over time. You can at one time be very hip and very stylistic, and then 10 years later, you completely give up on style and you dress in sweats all day. You can have a style of cooking in the kitchen where you are very messy and then you change your style to be very clean. So that's what attachment style is. It's a style. It's a, it's a routine or a habit or something. And it's developed in relation to our world. And so if your world has proven to you that, it can, that people can be trusted and that you're a lovable person, then you develop a secure attachment style because you are operating on these assumptions that you're lovable and that other people can be trusted. Then at the age of 25, you have a terrible relationship that teaches you otherwise, that you're not lovable and or other people cannot be trusted. And so thus you develop a different style of attaching that we might characterize as one of the insecure styles. So that's the key is, is that when we talk about attachment style, we're not talking about something that is fixed at all. It absolutely can be changed. So that's the way I'll answer that question. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from Kendra from Bellevue. Bellevue is a town near Seattle. Kendra says, how can people differentiate between a healthy self-esteem versus a narcissistic front to hide a possible lack of self-esteem? Would you mind exploring this idea and providing some signs on how to recognize or tell the difference between the two within ourselves, but also maybe some signals that we might use to identify this with other people in our lives as well? End of email. Yeah, this is a great question. What's the difference between healthy self-esteem and narcissistic grandiosity? And it can be difficult to detect, particularly if the narcissistic personality spectrum isn't very severe. High, you know, people that are very high in the narcissistic spectrum, it, if you know anything about narcissistic personality spectrum, it's pretty clear because, nar- you know, very narcissistic people are extremely sensitive to criticism, are, you know, very obviously braggadocious. Is that the word? <laughs> they brag a lot, they boast a lot, are very obviously insecure, is the thing. But if you're only mildly narcissistic, then you might have a very effective style of being able to mask the fact that you're insecure. And so what's the difference between that and healthy self-esteem? The other thing to say is that if you are mildly narcissistic, you, you can have healthy self-esteem at the same time. It's not like these two things are mutually exclusive. So you can have healthy self-esteem and also be on the narcissistic spectrum. Being on the narcissistic spectrum means that you were uh, mistreated to an extent as a child, usually through neglect on some level, that made you cope with that by saying, you know what, I, I can't depend on other people. I can only depend on myself. And 
in order to make myself be not very anxious, I need to believe that I am very special because I'm not being treated in a way that makes me feel very special. So to counteract this uh, life situation, I'm just going to pathologically convince myself that I am so special because if I don't overcompensate by saying I'm very special, I have to realize that I'm not that special and to recognize that means that I have to look into the abyss of myself and see terrible, terrible things. So so that's not self-esteem, right? That's desperation, right? Okay. So how would you detect it in yourself? Well, that's a great question. Um, and like I said, you can if you're mildly narcissistic, you can have healthy self-esteem. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I would say a lot of people who are mildly narcissistic do have healthy aspects to their self-esteem, meaning that they say, you know what, I can do things, I'm capable. You know, that's a good good thing to say. Now, the key is, is if it's desperate, if there's a desperation to the self-esteem, meaning that we look to the self-esteem in desperation as a way of trying to mask our own sense of inadequacy. Also, another key difference in recognizing this in other people is that Healthy self-esteem doesn't tend to hurt other people's feelings or annoy other people. When you're on the narcissistic spectrum, you're so desperate for uh, self-esteem, you will impose on other people. You'll talk a lot. You'll, you'll brag a lot. You'll tend to make other people feel lesser, even though it's not conscious. You might subtly do this by... And it can even be really mundane things like say you had a really great hamburger yesterday. Well, one of the narcissistic impulses is to say, you know, hey, yesterday, friend of mine, let me tell you about the hamburger I had yesterday. It was the best hamburger that has ever been made in the world. Okay, so this is a very subtle thing. It's not an overt brag, right? You're talking about a thing that someone else made. You're talking about a burger that some some restaurant made. But you're giving these messages of, I am so special that I had this awesome burger. My life is so awesome that I had this awesome burger. You, as my friend, have never had a burger like the burger that I had yesterday. Now, it's not clear, but if you're desperate for self-esteem, you will give these subtle messages and it will make other people feel bad. That'll make the other person feel just annoyed and hurt, essentially. And so if someone is doing that and you're, you're, you're feeling bad about yourself, so that's one way to always... People on the narcissistic spectrum almost always make people feel bad. And, it, and if you're subtly narcissistic, then it'll be, very, it'll be very subtle in the way it makes other people feel bad. Um, it's very complicated, but that is a very short sort of explanation of that. Now, how do you detect it in yourself? Well, that's a tough one because if you're narcissistic, you have a desperation for it that will make it so you will be in denial of the inferiority that you feel. Kind of a good metric, I guess, now that I'm talking about it is, is sensitivity to criticism. If you have healthy self-esteem and someone criticizes you, then you will tend to deal with the criticism in a differentiated manner. 
meaning that you won't shoot yourself in the foot, you won't overreact. You'll just be like, "Huh, okay, well, I don't that doesn't feel nice that they're criticizing me, but you know what? I know I'm a good person and you know, you might even not say anything. You know, someone's critical to you, you might just be like, "Huh. Well, that's their opinion. It's it's not my opinion." And I'm not going to fight with them about it outwardly. I'm just going to internally kind of disregard what they said or maybe I'll think about it later, that kind of thing. So that's healthy self-esteem. But if you if you are criticized and it really causes a reaction in you and you end up doing a lot of arguing in your mind against that person or even sort of arguing with the person back or somehow you know, rejecting the other person behaviorally, then – that might be a clue that the self-esteem is not actual self-esteem. It's just a grandiose veil that you have up to protect you from inferiority. And that's why people with narcissistic spectrum are so sensitive to criticism is because if they don't fight back on the criticism, the person has to acknowledge that they are flawed. And to acknowledge that they're flawed means they have to acknowledge that they might actually be inferior to everyone, which is terrifying to them because that's how they were made to feel growing up. Anyway, let's go on to another email. All right, this last email is from Upper Tier Patron, Anonymous Patron. They write, I was wondering if you had some general advice for moving past the fear and anxiety that keep folks from talking to their partner about difficult things. I deal with anxiety and OCD, and I often have trouble talking to my partner. For example, I may feel my partner has been less affectionate lately, but I'm afraid that when I ask about it, they'll respond that it's because they've fallen out of love with me. Any advice on getting the courage to have those conversations? End of email. Yeah, this is a tough one, and it's a frequent one. And I would say this is almost universal, so you're not alone, anonymous patron. Almost everyone has fear of bringing up something sensitive to their partner for fear that it will lead to something bad, abandonment being one of the bad things. So, you know, th this just happens. And your question is, how do I get the courage to have these conversations? Well, that's a tough one too, because if, if I just said to you, well, just do it, you know, like Shia LaBeouf says, just do it. You know, go for your dreams, you know, these kinds of things. That's easier said than done, of course. And it sounds like you understand that your anxiety might be excessive. So what do you do? Well, so to break it down, there's a lot of different things to do. One is as you have that fear and you're like, okay, well, I want to say something, but if I do, she's going to hate me. And then you try to counteract that by saying, no, no, no. The chance of her abandoning me over asking this very simple question is very slim. And if she does abandon me, then so be it. I mean, if her love for me is so tenuous and fragile, then let's get this over with and have her leave me. I mean, so it's not rational to say, well, if, you know, I shouldn't say this because she might divorce me if I bring it up. So, that's a cognitive therapy technique or a differentiation technique where you evaluate your fears and try to make sure if it makes any sense. So maybe that will help. But really, the main thing is, is recovering from your own anxiety and OCD and your own attachment issues that result in this behavior to begin with. What's wrong is that you don't have a 
good enough trust in other people. That's probably based on past experiences. So how do we gain trust in other people? Well, you have to have a lot of good experiences in which people prove to you that you can bring up sensitive topics and they will not run away from you. So what do you do? Well, you could obviously do that with your spouse, but as you're running into right now, it's you're in a catch-22 because in order to bring it up, you have to have the courage, but in order to have the courage, you have to have the corrective experiences in which you bring it up and it goes well. And that's where therapy comes in. So when you go to a relational therapist, you will say this thing. You could even just read this email and, and the therapist, okay, you know, let's work on your attachment in this therapeutic relationship so that you can gain trust in other people so you can generalize that to your relationships outside of here, namely your spouse. So that is my very short answer to that. Um, I guess the last thing I'll say to it is people are good. We can all trust other people. And if you enter into a conversation like this with good intentions and some good technique, meaning mainly you stay away from accusing the other person. You know, if you say something like, why are you so distant right now? Okay, that's different than saying, so I just want to say that I love you and everything's fine, but I've been feeling lately like you've been a little distant or that I feel distance from you, and that makes me sad. And I just wanted to tell you about that because I, I really like it when we, when we have closeness. So you notice in that I'm not accusing anyone of anything. I'm accentuating the positives. People tend to react better to that sort of thing. So if we have those kinds of techniques of opening up these conflicts, we can trust that other people are good. Other people are good. Other people have the same worries that you have. Other people have the same hopes and dreams of attachment, security, and lack of abandonment that you do. And this assumption that like, because a lot of people come from this basic assumption of like, well, um, you know, my spouse has been real distant lately. And if I bring it up, you know, she, she, she just doesn't care. She doesn't notice that we're distant. And she doesn't care. And I'm going to push her away. And I don't know every situation, obviously, but almost all the time, if not all the time, your spouse is feeling the distance too and doesn't know what to do. I would say spouses almost all the time are at least kind of concerned with distance. And so just know that your concern is probably shared and be on the same team. That you can say, look, I feel a little distance. Are you feeling a little distance? You know? And you both can work on it together rather than feeling like, well, if I bring this up, I'm basically going to be pulling teeth. Now, of course, many of you have spouses where it is pulling teeth with them, and it's very complicated. But anyway, my, my central thesis here is trust that other people have hearts and that other people are good and that other people have love. And when you trust that, a lot of good things can happen from that. Obviously, some bad things can happen from that. But I feel like we are very quick to conclude that other people don't care when they usually do care. Anyway, everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. (laughs) 